Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm Stacey Toth, best-selling author and co-creator of PaleoParents.com, where we focus on real-life solutions for families seeking help. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of ThePaleoMom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Hey, listeners, and Sarah, how are you? Oh, you remember to say hi to our listeners first. I try. I'm just, I'm proud. (laughs) Can I tell you something? I have two things to tell you. One, um, I went to Chicago, and it was amazing. And you remember when we went to Chicago, and we were like, we need to come back and spend more time, and it'll be amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did that. And I ate my way Aww. through the city, and I spent the... It's a good city to eat your way through. Totally. Five days with Matt. No, I did have a work conference. <laughs> so, so you ignored Matt during the day. Yep. Um, yeah. And then was able to, like, eat gluten-free donut with him one morning, get coffee with him one morning. Uh, I went to this place called High Vibe, which if you ever go to Chicago, you have to go there. It's pretty much a paleo slash vegan. They call themselves a juice bar, but it's like smoothie bowls, bulletproof coffee. And like they made me, it's kind of like picnic. They made me a collagen coffee with um, vanilla bean like in it instead of like extract. It was amazing. I loved it. Anyway, we ate our way through the city and I just want to thank listeners who contacted me via social media and told me all of the amazing places that I needed to visit and things to do, not just eating things, but I also did like the architectural boat tour down the river that runs through the middle of Chicago. Amazing. Sounds so fun. Never would have known to do that if it weren't for you all. So thank you listeners. Um, I am going to be tapping our amazing listeners for information when it comes to my book tour this fall, because we are starting to set cities and dates guys. Once I have it figured out, um, but it will be roughly November 7th to November 16th. And it'll probably be a city most days. So I think I'll hit seven, eight cities. Um, so like, hang on for more information on that. I'm, we're still, we're still, we're just, we're just barely at the, yes, we're pretty sure this book will get completed. So we should book a tour part because crazy town, but yes, that was one thing. You have a second thing to tell me. Yeah. So do you remember like two years ago when I got vertigo after a strongman competition? Hmm? Did I talk about that here? You know, I don't know if you talked about it here. You certainly talked about it with with me you. because you had been going like super low salt, right? Was that what we yeah. decided? Yeah. yeah. So I, it was caused by dehydration is what a medical professional told me. And I believed them because once I got rehydrated, I um, felt much better. And what I learned about vertigo is that it's something that like, once you get it, like you have it for life, it's much easier to like re-get it. And there's a couple of triggers for it. And one of the triggers is the change in elevation from flying. But I've flown several times um, over the last year. Like I even went to Europe and back, which was, you know, a much longer flight. 
um, and didn't have vertigo, but I also took like this uh, medication, like this precautionary medication that they gave me. But because they haven't had it in so long, it completely forgot that it existed and did not like have not uh, gotten that medicine again. And so I've had vertigo since I came back from Chicago. Oh, sad. I know. Fortunately, on the way there, I didn't get it. So I enjoyed my trip. But it was so weird. Like the day that I got back, I felt really nauseous that evening. It's not like it happens the minute that you set foot on ground. It kind of like creeped up on me. And now it's to the point where it's almost comical. Like people around me are like, really? Are you faking this? I'm like, no, I got off of the elevator at work and I felt like there was an active earthquake. Like my body was like swaying like crazy. I'm like, uh, I should probably go do something about this, but I've been trying to drink more water and, um, get some good electrolytes and try to, replenish, rehydrate myself. Cause I know that that's likely what I need. I think that the combination of like being in Chicago, walking around sweating well, and travel can be dehydrating. Period. Exactly. Like it's, you know, especially those longer airplane rides, you never drink enough. The air is so dry. Like that's, that's always my big challenge is, is staying hydrated on, on flights. Yeah. And I wasn't drinking nearly as much water in Chicago as I needed to, because um, just the way that like the work conference oh, and the yeah. travel when you're was happening. Those busy days. Exactly. Yeah. Like I just, anyway, so listeners, if you have other than the trick of like turning your head upside down and doing the spinny thing to get the crystal out of your ear, that does not work for me. There's like YouTube videos. If you have vertigo, check it out. That works for a lot of people. It doesn't work for me. Uh, but if you have natural solutions to helping alleviate vertigo, Please uh, post them in the comments of this podcast on Sarah and I's site so that we can share them with other listeners. And <laughs> hopefully by the time this goes live, I don't have it anymore. But um, in the future, I would like to use those techniques. Yeah. Um, no, our, we have the best listeners. The best? They have totally the best have ideas. Do. Um, I have two things to share with you. The first is... Two for two. My kids went back to school yeah, today. Yeah, I can't even. I don't know what that <laughs> means. They were out for 10 weeks. Like they had the full – they had their full – and we're on an equal calendar. So they get a couple extra weeks off during the school year. Um, but we were all excited. I mean my kids were like vibrating. They were so excited. Um, and uh, And so – and my, my seven-year-old, every time she would tell me how excited she was for school over the last week, she would feel the, the necessity to to assure me, but it's not because you're a horrible parent. So every single time she'd be like, she'd be like, I can't wait for school to start next week, but it's not because you're a horrible parent. Like just – she wanted to reassure me that, you know – I feel like going it, out of not, your way like no that offense. is even more of an No alarm offense, though. mom. Yeah. No, it's, it's nothing to do with you, mom. It's just that I'm done spending time with you this summer and I'm ready, <laughs> ready to be at school. But um, but yeah, so it was an exciting day, day for all. And um, I've been my, – my number two thing is that I caught up to my editor today. So I have been um, – You sure it's not a Dropbox sync issue? Well, that's what I thought Saturday afternoon. I read your I was caught up. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah, so Saturday afternoon I thought I was caught up. And then realized my Dropbox hadn't been syncing for three days and that there was actually two more chapters that she'd put in there. But I got one done yesterday and one done today. So um, 
that means not only am I caught up to her, but there's only three chapters left to edit. So um, I should have those on my plate this week. Um, so I should be done the editing by the end of next weekend, I think. Um, I, two of the chapters that are left are like two of the longest chapters in the book. So those every once in a while I've been hit with edits on a chapter that have been not straightforward and have required, you know, going back to PubMed and doing more research. And um, they've asked for a lot of additions for things, which I think is so funny because, because they keep talking about how this is like the longest book they've ever published. It really is like there's about, I would say ballpark like 40 or 50% more science than the paleo approach with like the entire paleo approach cookbook added to the I book. I can't even wrap my mind around that. So like, until I'm holding it, I'm not going to get it. Yeah, like we don't have a rough page count at this point. Like the joke is like, oh yeah, that'll be on page like 1237. <laughs> um, although I'm, I think, I don't, I think it'll be more like 600 pages. I don't think it'll actually be that, that crazy, but, um, but yeah, it's, well, I really wanted to create an all-in-one resource. Like that was really important to me and it was not an option um, back when I wrote the Paleo Approach and the Paleo Approach Cookbook, because those were supposed to be one book. And um, at that point, uh, our publisher printed with a different printer, and they didn't have availability for these these stronger bindings that could actually hold more pages. So this is, you know, a, a new thing now um, that, that I have access to. But that's, you know, that's why Paleo Principles is a hardcover, because that we cannot... Um, cannot do that in, in paperback. It is never going to be able to come out in paperback because because of its uh, huge, huge, huge amount of content. But um, but yeah, I it's I've been I've been working my tail off is what I've been doing um, to try and catch up because uh, we're really coming down to the wire in terms of getting the book designed and copy edited and you know, they keep saying like indexing alone is going to take three weeks, which is uh, a really, really long time for a professional indexer to work full time on a book to index it. So, um, so I'm at this point though, where like I caught up today and I'm like, okay, I, I mean, I'll probably wake up in the morning to a, a huge chapter, but it's, it's a really, it's a feeling that makes me just kind of go, okay, I got it. You know, like it's, it's not, um, it's not really a relief. It's just, I, I feel like I'm not spiraling out of control as much. So that that's really nice. And and having the kids um, back at school and back in that routine is just going to make getting through these last, um, I've got like six weeks before the book goes to print now. So just getting through that amount of time, I think it's going to make it um, just a lot, but just more practical. Just have, I have more work hours when they're, when they're at school and all their after-school activities start up. So, so yeah, that's, that's what I'm all excited about. So I'm excited about today's topic because I have a feeling that you might get on a soapbox or at the very least drop some serious science bombs. I'm going to nerd out on this one. Um, you know, this has been one of the fun things for me about writing Paleo Principles is it's given me the um, sort of the, the motivation to go, back into the scientific literature and um, not only see what's new, but kind of like find older papers that I had never seen before. And um, it's just one of those things where I, um, 
uh, the more little t- bits and pieces that I, I learn about, I mean, it's not just about what we're going to talk about today, but even um, things like what certain nutrients do. And I, I've got some um, blog posts coming that are going to, to share a lot of this information, but, you know, discovering, for example, that um, zinc uh, helps tighten up tight junctions in gut epithelial cells. Like little, those tiny little tidbits to me are always so fascinating. And I keep learning new things that um, make this whole, you know, template that is paleo solidify even more. And it makes all these little pieces that we keep talking about on the show, like nutrient density and and toxin avoidance and uh, balance between diet and lifestyle. It makes all of those um, ideas really like it, the foundation for them gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And it makes everything just really, it keeps holding even with the addition of all of, all of these fun little tidbits. So um, it's a good time to, to do a, a, a nerdy sciencey topic because this information is, is so fresh in my head. Um, but it's, it's also for me, this is, you know, this is my jam. I like it. I like it when you nerd out too. And I especially like it when you find even more reason for me to feel good about eating foods that I love, like oysters. That I, I just did that, didn't I? You right did. now. You did. Titans, tight junctions. Uh, so does, just fun fact, quercetin, which is uh, found in apples and onion family vegetables. Fascinating. All foods I love. Like, right? seriously, all foods I love. Totally down. So why don't we get to Sandra Lee's question? Um, we're kind of using Sandra Lee's question as an inspiration for this topic, but why don't I read her question, then we can go from there. Sounds good. Sandra Lee says, I listened to a really interesting podcast about wheat and why people react to it so much. It talked about Roundup and why it causes such problems and how wheat has changed and why. I thought it would make a great podcast topic for the Paleo View. Thanks for all you do. You are fantastic. I I assumed she said you are fantastic with a lot of enthusiasm. And obviously that's why her question was chosen. (laughs) Uh, you are also fantastic listeners. We love you. We love, we love all our listeners. Um, the yes, sucking up is a surefire way to get your question on the show. But the other thing um, that I loved about this was the fact that I don't think we've really talked about, um, the sort of like then and now differences in wheat and how that might be responsible for, um, some of the negative health impacts of wheat. So I thought, you know, this is kind of a cool thing because there's there's some um, myths out there. So why don't we start with one of those myths? Because one of the things that um, people have probably heard, and, and I know there's some fairly prominent authors who um, oversimplify what the science actually says and says there's more gluten in wheat now than there was, you know, 80 years ago before um, wheat started being – uh, very selected for monocrops. And that particular statement is not technically true. 
So uh, gluten is actually a fairly complex protein, and it's actually made up of some smaller proteins. One is called gliadin, and one is called glutenin. And um, there's actually, and, and they sort of cross-link and, and they combine, you know, together. Um, there's actually about the same amount of gluten in modern grains compared to heirloom varieties of wheat. But what's different is the uh, particular gliadin that is in the wheat. So um, backing up a little bit farther, one of the reasons why gluten is so problematic for human health is it's not particularly compatible with our digestive enzymes. So it happens to have a lot of the amino acid proline in it. Our body has a really hard time breaking up the links between proline amino acids in a protein molecule. And so what happens when we digest gluten, and, and actually really specifically this means the gliadin component of gluten, um, is that it gets broken up in these really predictable spots. So um, we end up with these fragments of gliadin in our digestive tract, and this is true across, you know, no matter who eats wheat products, um, we end up with uh, gliadin fragments that are fairly predictable. So we know, you know, this little, you know, 200 amino acid long gliadin fragment is produced. We know this 50 amino acid long gliadin fragment is produced and they, there's a naming scheme. Um, and so we, and a lot of what we know about the effects of gluten on the human body are actually, it, it's really these specific gliadin fragments and what they do. So some are very good at um, tricking the body into, uh, you know, bringing them across the gut barrier and into the body. Some of them increase uh, zonulin production in people with a genetic susceptibility. So that's, uh, we know it's not just celiacs, but we know it's also other people with the HLA DQ2 or HLA DQ8 genes. So we have, you know, this, the, all of these things that we know that gluten does, most of what we know about that actually is from studying specific gliadin peptides, so specific small fragments of gliadin that we know are produced in our digestive tract and looking at either cell culture systems or, um, you know, looking at biopsies or looking at animal models of celiac disease and looking at what these, what these particular fragments do. So what's different between modern wheat and the old sort of heirloom varieties of wheat is actually uh, specific gliadin uh, pieces that are known to be particularly problematic for celiacs, there's more of those pieces. So it's not that there's more gluten overall. It's just that the way that the molecules formed, the particular um, types of gliadin that are in it, when it's broken down into our body, we have more of these problematic pieces of, of gliadin. So it's not that there's more gluten, but there is still more um, what are sort of called um, problematic epitopes for celiac disease. So we've still got more triggers for things like antibody production, for immune system activation, for uh, zonulin production. So that's one, I think, fairly major difference between heirloom wheat and modern wheat. And that is something that, you know, is really... Um, it's really followed the changes in wheat over the last sort of 80 to 100 years. Um, so that's one big change. Um, another one actually has nothing to do 
with gluten whatsoever. So there's another class of problematic compounds in wheat called digestive enzyme inhibitors. So those do exactly what the name implies. Um, Our bodies produce enzymes that help us digest our food. Some digestive enzymes break down sugars or or starches. Some break down proteins. Some break down fats. A digestive enzyme inhibitor is a molecule that stops the activity of that enzyme. So that enzyme can't digest whatever it's supposed to digest, whether it's um, carbohydrates, proteins, or fats. Um, And wheat is particularly high in what are called amylase trypsin inhibitors. So they Um, inhibit both trypsin, which is a a protein-digesting enzyme that's produced by our pancreas, and amylase, which is a starch-digesting enzyme, which is made – we we have it in our saliva, but uh, it's also made by our pancreas. And it turns out that these particular digestive enzyme inhibitors that are in wheat – cause gut inflammation just by themselves. They cause um, gut inflammation. In fact, there are some researchers that believe that non-celiac gluten sensitivity is actually um, the um, uh, sort of gastropathology, the inflammation to the the, uh, GI system that's caused by these amylase trypsin inhibitors. Um, And it turns out that there is way, way, way more of these digestive enzyme inhibitors in modern wheat varieties than either ancient wheat, so about 100 times more, or gluten-free grains. So gluten-free grains have a very, very small amount compared to modern wheat. And so that might explain why, um, you know, it can look like gluten sensitivity because gluten containing, you know, most of the Uh, products that contain gluten would contain these modern, you know, wheat products. Uh, Whereas if you went and ate, you know, some kind of, you know, quinoa or, um, you know, buckwheat or like a gluten-free grain, you're starting to talk about a a grain or pseudograin that has far less digestive enzyme inhibitors. So that's another, like, big difference between modern wheat and heirloom or ancient varieties. Um, There's other differences just in terms of the way that they're grown now. So wheat is now grown as a monocrop. This is a pretty um, devastating um, uh, farming model in terms of the land. So, uh, you know, in this this model, um, acres and acres and acres are clear-cut, Everything is killed <laughs> in that dirt. Uh, one crop is is grown, um, and then it's turned over. The it depletes the soil, so there's not enough root structure. The soil gets washed away. The plants use up all the nutrients in the soil. Chemical fertilizers are used, which only replace a few minerals back into the soil, and not the entire diversity that you would get from, uh, you know, a small scale farming where you would rotate crops and you would uh, turn over. Um, you know, the what's left over from the previous crop into the soil to act as compost, where you would be using things like compost and manure as fertilizer rather than chemical fertilizers. Um, and then what happens also with these crops is they're very heavily sprayed with pesticides, and um, that can actually cause further issues in the soil. So one of the interesting things with the Roundup debate, um, you know, it it we used to chemically look at Roundup and say it 
has no effect on human cells. Therefore, it must be safe for humans. And research from the last sort of 10 to 15 years is starting to show not so much, not so true. Um, so the, the chemical in Roundup, Roundup is called glyphosate. And what happens is we've got these genetically engineered um, you know, crops that are you know, Roundup ready. People have heard probably that buzz term. And what it means is that you know, the wheat, for example, is resistant to Roundup, so Roundup won't kill it. Um, and the idea is that you can then spray all of that wheat with Roundup. The wheat won't die, but all the weeds in between the wheat will die. Um, the problem is, is that uh, there's, t- there's several problems. Um, we used to think that Roundup would be completely deactivated when it interacted with the soil. And it doesn't turn out to be true. And actually, there's been no studies in uh, America, but in Europe, they've done studies where they use far, far less Roundup, by the way. They've done studies where they just like look at people's blood and look to see if there's glyphosate levels in their blood. And something like a third of the population has measurable glyphosate. Given that Roundup is so much more prevalent in America, it's kind of surprising that there's been no studies um, to look at that. So that's definitely science that's desperately needed. Um, so glyphosate does a couple of things. One is it's a mineral chelator. So it binds to minerals and there's actually a, um, a, 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 so it can bind to the minerals in the dirt. And that's one reason how glyphosate can be deactivated, but it also makes those minerals in the dirt unaccessible to plants to absorb, which means the plants don't have those minerals. I mean, we don't have those minerals and there's actually a way where, um, Roundup can actually kill the soil if too much is used by binding up all of the minerals. So nothing can actually grow in that in that soil. So, um, you know, in, in the extreme cases of, you know, too much Roundup being used, it, it's a huge problem, this this chelating aspect. And it is known to impact um, people. So it is known when you're measuring glyphosate in the blood of somebody, it's chelated to minerals. So those minerals are not able to do their normal jobs in our bodies. I think the bigger impact with glyphosate um, is that it kills bacteria. And so in the initial sort of safety studies with Roundup, it was like, hey, look, human cells are fine, which is great, except that we are about, you know, three to 10 times as many bacteria as we are human cells, right? Makes up the human body. So when you're um, exposed to glyphosate, and especially if you're consuming glyphosate, that's actually pretty dramatically altering the microbiome. And there are now quite a few scientific studies to show that glyphosate can cause very undesirable uh, loss of probiotic strains of bacteria in the gut. So it's like another one of those circumstances where the the most probiotic bacteria, the guys that we have the strongest links between um, you know, positive health impact and having these guys growing in your gut, they tend to be the most sensitive. So they're, they're the most sensitive to diet. So they're the ones that die off the fastest when you don't eat enough fiber, you don't eat enough vegetables. They're the ones that die off with antibiotic use. They're like, and they're also the ones that are most sensitive to, to glyphosate. Um, so that's another huge issue with, with Roundup. So, you know, there's, this is one of those issues where direct human impact, you know, still, needs to be measured, especially like there are no American studies um, in in humans that are really helping to draw links between Roundup use and and health. But there are people, I mean, I was actually looking at a study uh, a week or two ago 
that actually just took celiac disease and went through all of the different um, mechanisms in celiac, all the different things that are going on, and linked every single one to glyphosate. Um, they even linked like tissue transglutaminase antibody production to glyphosate. So like every single thing that was going on in, in a, a celiac disease sufferer, they were able to link causality to glyphosate. And, you know, I wouldn't, I don't think that you can completely blame celiac disease on glyphosate. Celiac disease existed before Roundup use. Like there's, there's obviously, you know, it's a complex um, autoimmune disease, but you might be able to say, given the links between celiac disease mechanisms and glyphosate impact on um, our health in terms of chelating minerals and the microbiome, you could say it's a probable contributor to the fairly dramatic rise in celiac disease incidents seen over the last 40, 50 years. So, um, so that's another big difference in terms of, of crops is, is the pesticide use. And separate from Roundup, um, most other pesticides that um, are approved for use have uh, some kind of immune modulating properties. So, I mean, the ones that are banned globally, you know, those were immunotoxic. Um, and so it was, you know, discovered that they were devastating people's immune systems. But there are a number of pesticides that are approved for use that, um, you know, stimulate certain aspects of the adaptive immune system. Our autoimmune disease listeners will probably be familiar with the idea of Th1 versus Th2 balance. So this is two different helper T cell subsets in the human body. One drives antibody production. One drives sort of attacking cells and, and cells that, that eat up um, bacteria and, and viruses in the body. And, you know, it's there's a whole pile of other different cell types in the immune system. So it's definitely an oversimplification. But in autoimmune disease, you tend to have one of those subsets be overactive and not and the other one be suppressed. And it can be it can be either or. And so a lot of pesticides stimulate one or the other. So there's this idea that pesticides may be contributing to imbalances in the immune system. And when you have an imbalance in the immune system, the immune system can't regulate itself properly. So it's ineffective. And that creates a situation where you can get chronic disease. But the other issue with these monocrops, separate from the pesticide use and the potential health impacts of glyphosate, is the fact that it is stripping the nutrition out of the soil. So when you strip the nutrition out of the soil, you strip the nutrition available to those plants, which means those plants do not have the same amount of vitamins and minerals as they would if they were grown in good soil. And there's a few different studies that have looked at, you know, changes like how much of, you know, the vitamins that we knew about 50 years ago and measured in, you know, carrots and broccoli and, you know, grains and rice and whatever. How much was there 50 years ago? Let's do a follow-up and look at how much is there now. And sort of across the board, just from these, you know, big factory farming projects that um, really don't protect the topsoil in any kind of way, you can see depending on the crop and depending on the nutrient, anywhere between a, oh, it's like 3% lower in copper in this carrot than it was 50 years ago to like 80% lower. And so what what's happening is this is not just applicable to grains, but just our, 
you know, plant foods that we grow doesn't have as much nutrition as um, the equivalent if it's grown in, in high quality soil, which is, you know, not just an argument against, you know, factory farming and uh, against grain consumption in general, but it, it also goes to why, you know, supporting local farmers, you know, nerding out about dirt quality with your farmer. I mean, that's, that's you know, one of the reasons why I've bonded so much with, with my local farmers is that we, you know, we talk about compost and we all get excited. Um, but but that's another another huge impact is that, you know, grains really are nutrient void. I mean, grains tend not to have a ton of nutrition anyways. There's only a couple of minerals that they're actually high in, like basically manganese and selenium uh, and sodium. But um, but when you talk about depleted soils, you just exacerbate that so much more. So you get this extra effect of like it's really, really, really empty calories in – the context of one of the major contributors to chronic disease is nutrient deficiency and the fact that our food supply is so refined and so processed. Um, the nutrients are stripped out so much, but even if you go back to the whole foods, the whole foods don't even have as much nutrients as they used to. And it makes the, um, it makes the challenge of nutrient sufficiency that much bigger because you really have to not just seek out the most nutrient-dense foods available to us, which is what the paleo template is based on, but then seek out the highest quality of those foods in order to like, get the most nutrient-dense version of each one of those foods. And it, it makes it um, a, a, just a bigger, a bigger collection of, of criteria for, for picking food and, and things to think about. One of the things that I'm curious about, if you came across in your research, is the idea of pesticides as in multiple groups. So I see a lot of people as um, thinking that just because something is organic, that it doesn't have um, pesticides on it, but there are mm. organic pesticides. So to me, one of the things that I look for when I'm talking to farmers is more about their growing practices. Like you said, you know, soil quality, um, if they're, you know, irrigating or taking natural measures, or if they're actually spraying the foods. Like I don't use the words pesticide, but I say, do you spray the foods? Um, is that something that you've seen a differential in or how would people go about identifying that? So in terms of studies, I think there's like three little like different points that I want to make by way of answering that question. In terms of studies, um, you know, the the organic pesticides have not been evaluated um, as rigorously as chemical pesticides because they're, you know, the way the, – the compounds that they're derived from are considered to be um, inert. And so, you know, for example, an organic pesticide can completely span the gamut from <laughs> – I used dish soap to wash the leaves of this plant, you know, diluted dish soap to, to wash off all the aphids, like, or I used uh, vinegar, um, or there's, you know, some chemicals that can be purchased at the store. I know that, um, you know, my farmers that I purchase from, they don't use anything if, if you know, they're watering their plants if, if needed, or if they lose a crop, they lose a crop. Like, it's... 
It's um, they're using natural methods like chickens, which are great little pesticide or pesticides themselves, right? They they eat all the pests. Um, they're they're using crop rotation. They're using proper separation of crops. Um, high, you know, actually keeping hydration is is a really good way to keep some bugs off of crops. So there's a lot of bugs prefer crops that are already distressed um, or already, um, especially if they're they're not getting enough water. Um, so in, in terms of like the direct answer to your question, I have not seen any papers that look at what would be considered, uh, organic pesticides and whether or not they have any kind of immune modulating activity. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is the environmental working group has done some studies on organic produce and shown that even like I think they did one in organic strawberries if I remember correctly and showed that organic strawberries had less pesticides uh, residues on them than conventional strawberries but they still had really alarmingly high levels and it was from the shipping so there was literally they were in close enough contact in trucks or in warehouses or in <laughs> grocery store storerooms. I'm not exactly sure exactly where, but close enough contact that the, they were able to be contaminated with the pesticide residues that were on the conventionally grown berries. And berries are some of the, the most heavily sprayed crops. So there's certainly an aspect to this where, you know, it, it, um, it layers, right? So, um, organic produce that you get in a big store can be grown in just as depleted soil as the non-organic monocrop stuff. So it's, um, just buying organic is not necessarily enough to say this is actually going to be completely free of pesticide residues or completely free of chemicals that may or may not be problematic or be a more nutritious, you know, nutrient dense version of this fruit or vegetable. Um, but that being said, you know, it's one of those, this is one of those things where making some effort and doing the best you can, for example, I always recommend, uh, knowing the dirty dozen list. So the environmental working group every year does an evaluation of 50 fruits and vegetables. For you totally residues. stole what I set up for <sighs> myself to add value here. Okay. I'll stop. I'll rewind. Um, I don't know <laughs> how you decide which fruits and vegetables to choose based on pesticide residues. Stacy. Wow, Sarah. It's almost like you knew how to set me up for this. <laughs> um, yes. I think like that's, that whole discussion is really what led us to finding it not worth the money um, to buy all of our food organic. I think, mm. you know, there are articles, not just the Clean 15 and Dirty Dozen, um, that talk a lot about, you know, where you'll get your best bang for your buck on, our, on organic foods. But, um, you know, obviously anything that we can buy from someone who's grown it themselves is preferred, even if it's not uh, classified as organic. Oftentimes those people are using measures that are better than certification standards. Well, and certification is extremely expensive. Exactly. So a lot of small scale farmers will grow organically and not be able to afford the certification. Exactly. So, you know, to me, those are things that we prioritize above um 
you know, the label of organic. Now, if we're purchasing it from, let's say, Costco, there are some foods that are at such a great price point that buying the organic frozen uh, wild blueberries are a great option for us. Whereas, you know, some other options, especially if they're out of season, become unbearably expensive. And it's just not worth it if it's not um, one of the most egregious foods, or if there isn't that much of a difference. So I think it's really important to learn the foods that your family eats most often and where they fall in that range. Um, Not just, you know, wheat and grains, um, I think it's really super important, especially when you're eating um, non-gluten grains. So, for example, our rice is organic and it's polished, uh, not bleached, right? So you have to learn all of those terms and making sure that you're getting um, the healthiest version of whatever it is that you're eating um, and and also keep your budget in, in mind. Like you don't need to go above and beyond on every single thing because you're not necessarily getting – Um, a return on your investment for that. And we've talked about that on other podcasts, like, you know, with chicken and different things like that. Like, where do you really see an improvement in the quality and the nutrition of the food? Um, To us, we care a lot about humanely raised, um, not just chicken, but all animals. Um, But if we're going to have to buy store-bought, do we really need organic free-range considering it's already so high in omega-6 and different things like that? So there's a lot to know about and to be aware of, but I think this idea of um, pesticides being the only reason that gluten is now bad is something that I'm glad you've addressed. And it's a message that really carries over into all the different foods that are available today, not just wheat. Yeah, exactly. You know, I th- I think I I we've talked about some of the other um impacts of, you know, gluten and wheat germ gluten on the podcast before and that's definitely information that is described in scientific detail uh on my website in the paleo approach and coming in paleo principles. Um so, you know, for people who are like not just how wheat has changed, but what is in wheat that's always been in wheat that might be problematic, um we've I there's lots of great places and we can make sure there's links in the show notes to, to go check out that information. But I kind of wanted to end on a, you know, when it comes to pesticides, um, reducing exposure is great, but getting to the point where there's zero exposure is, um, you know, at, at, at some point it's a losing battle. And so, um, you know, I, I start my, my shopping every week at the farmer's market, um, I buy what's in season and local, and then I round out from the grocery store. And I'm like you, I can't afford to buy purely organic produce at the store. So I pick and choose. So frequent flyers on the Dirty Dozen list, like leafy greens, um, I I do my best to get organic. Um, and then anything I'm going to peel, like a banana or an orange, if I'm going to peel the part that's sprayed, then I, I'm not going to worry about it as much. So, um, so I, I try to be familiar with those lists and, and especially right. The things that pop up again and again and again. Um, so there, there's certain sort of thematic, you know, leafy greens, celery, berries, apples, right. These, these are the foods that kind of show up on the list at some point year after year. Um, so those are the ones that I, I try to get organic as often as possible, then sometimes it's just not possible. And I 
don't worry about it. Um, you know, I, I wash my produce before we eat it. And unless it's from the farmer's market and I, then, then I want the good dirt that's still on it. And then I definitely don't wash it. Um, but I just think about the other things that I can do to protect our immune systems, to protect our, uh, endocrine systems, right? The, the other things that the pesticides can interfere with. So, Nutrient density, stress management, activity, sleep, um, you know, um, lots of fiber. You know, these are all things that can help dramatically with with detoxification and, and our ability to handle exposure to, you know, chemicals that ideally we wouldn't – ideally this wouldn't be an issue. Like someone would have figured out ages ago that monocrops were not the way to go. Um, but given given that this is the world that we live in, you know, we, we try to – we try to do our best, but we don't worry about um, or try not to stress about my limitations in um, in reaching that sort of pinnacle of, of food quality. We don't. We, we can't afford to. It's, it's too expensive. Um, but we do the best we can within our budget and um, and then, you know, work on the other things that we do have control over. Boom. Mic drop. I have nothing to add. Sweet. Thanks again for listening. It was a, a great show. I enjoyed this one. Uh, it was a topic I've been actually curious about myself and uh, honestly looking forward to next week's topic as well. We've already got that one queued up. So it's been fun getting back into routine with you, Sarah. And listeners, thanks again for tuning in. And we look forward to being back again next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. How are ya? Hello. Well, my back feels very hot. But, you know. Don't you okay. know you're not supposed to aggravate stinging insects? Uh... I was sitting in my bathroom. <laughs> uh oh, here it comes. Minding my own business inside my house. And like all of a sudden, I'm like, what's itching on my back? And I go to scratch my back, and there's a yellow jacket crawling all over it. And so it stings me and then falls to the ground where it's clearly flopping around because. It doesn't belong inside a house. It belongs outside and it's like dying. So, you know, I flush it down the toilet and then like belatedly kind of like, like hang on, my back doesn't because I didn't feel like the moment it stung me, it was just, like slowly started feeling hotter and hotter and hotter. And I was like, um, not cool. Not cool. I didn't I didn't go into its place. I didn't go into its home. It came into mine. Tell me how you feel about it. Seems like, I, seems like you, you know, are totally I, chill and have no. I disapprove of stinging insects. Mm-hmm. It's not my favorite thing, and I'm not happy. So I guess we'll be back next week. Is that what we're saying? Thanks so much for tuning in. Um, I've enjoyed these past couple podcasts getting back into a routine. I'm looking forward to 
um, an interesting pod, uh, podcast topic that we've got queued up for next week already. And um, it's great to be back. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. I We can't say that. I said be back like four times in the same <laughs> sentence. <laughs> oh, I thought it was super cute that you like threw it to me and then I finished your sentence and then it was like. And then we repeated the same words. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Because we're the same person. Oh, listeners, we're sorry. Sometimes we're on point And tonight you've seen us be ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> you had Good a bad bug. bug. It's okay to not be Maybe. a big fan. I don't think yellow jackets are contributing to this planet in any positive way. No, they're bad bugs, for sure. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.